Apparently, a lot of people, businesses and politicians, are starting to suffer from what is being recognised as a symptom of Brexit. And it's called Brexit fatigue. Is anyone suffering from this? You'll know if you're suffering from it, because the minute you put the news on, you switch the news off. You look at BBC News or the Guardian website and you shut your laptop. You hear Brexit mentioned and your blood pressure rises or you get a cold sweat. These are the sort of normal symptoms of Brexit fatigue. But actually, for some businesses, it is really serious. Because businesses need to prepare for Brexit, don't they? They need to prepare for it. But the problem is, we don't know what it is. Who's been listening to what the Prime Minister has been saying over the the last few days? You're not suffering from Brexit fatigue, if you have been. But she's been saying, quite clearly, and she was saying it again this morning, I saw it on the news, that actually, at the moment, it's the checkers deal, or it's no deal. That's it. Checkers deal, or no deal. There is no other way. It's her plan, or the default. The default is no plan. I don't know if you ever think about defaults in life. If you ever think about default positions of what happens in your life if you don't do certain things. Just for a minute, think about, about defaulting on various things. If I drive my car and I don't fill it up with fuel, what's the default? It stops. And if I never fill it with fuel again, it stops, sits by the roads and rots. And that's what happened. That is the default with a car. Supposing I decide that I'd rather spend my money on fun things rather than bills. What happens? For a while, I'd be very happy. What happens after that period of elation? Eventually, I would end up in court. That is the default. I'm not quite sure what would happen then, but that would be the default. What happens if I totally give up gardening? Well, weeds... (laughs) Thank you. Claire said I have done. (laughs) What happens? First of all, you get weeds. Come back to the garden 40 years down the line. What is the default in this country? What would be there? Woodland. Yeah, woodland. Wilderness. Woodland. That is the default sort of vegetation of this country. Life is full, you know, of default positions. Things that if we don't do anything, naturally happen. Things that we really don't have any control of if we won't stop caring about certain things in life. Well, today we're in Ephesians again, and we're in chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 through to 10. It's on page 1008 and 9, if you've got a church Bible in front of you. Now, what Paul does in this passage, he really gives us two options of ways to live. And he's really sharing the testimony of the Christians in Ephesus. Now, um, if you're in a small group, um, you're going to be looking at the whole of chapter 2 this week. But just for this morning, we're looking at the first 10 verses. Otherwise, we'll be here an awful long time. So it's entitled in the Bible, Made Alive in Christ. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with, with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show you the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Just have a moment of stillness, shall we? Before we open this passage up together. By grace through faith. Lord, you call us into relationship. Just want to pray that wherever we find ourselves today, that actually something of this passage will take root in our lives, whether it's for the first time, whether it's for the hundredth or thousandth time, that just again we will appreciate what you have done for us. Help us, Lord, we pray. Amen. <coughs> don't know if anyone's, <coughs> excuse me, don't know if anyone's read the World Happiness Report from this year. It's a really exciting document. The United Nations publish it each year. It's about this thick. And it talks about how happy different countries are. And apparently, at the moment, the UK sits at number 19 on the happiness scale. And we have a score of something like 6.4 out of 10. Who feels 6.4 out of 10 happy this morning? Seven? Any check? And it sounds like an auction, doesn't it? Basically, what this means is about two-thirds of the population are more or less content with their lives. They think that things are going okay. Sometimes as Christians, I think it can be tempting to, to want to think that people who don't know Jesus are somehow living miserable, pointless lives with no joy in them. But actually what this report will say is that for a lot of people, they make their own meaning. And it might be meaning around work, it might be around family, it might be around friends, it might be around relationships or hobbies or good causes. Quite a lot of people are actually fairly content with what life throws at them. But then sometimes as Christians, I think we move to the other extreme. You know, sometimes being said, and I have to be honest, that if ever I hear this phrase, I do a little cringe inside. And it's this. People have a God-shaped hole that only Jesus can fill. I don't know if you've ever heard evangelists sometimes use that phrase. Now, I know what people mean when they say that. But when we read this passage here, we don't just have a God-shaped hole. We have an incredibly bleak future without Christ. Christ is not the missing piece of the jigsaw just to make us feel a little bit better. But he is a totally new reality. And this is what this passage will bring us. See, Paul will not tell us that people are unhappy or lacking purpose. But that actually people are dying in sin and heading for the wrath of God. So the first part of this passage we'll find it's not an easy read. It's not a comfortable read. It certainly isn't a fashionable read to start talking about these kind of things. We'd much rather speak about God's love than God's wrath. But actually, we can't speak about God's love without addressing the wrath of God because the wrath of God is about the justice of God that won't overlook sin, that won't see that things that absolutely evil things that have happened and just ignore them at all. And so what Paul will do in this passage is really give us the testimony of the Ephesian Christians. He will say, this is who you were, and this is the default position of human beings without Christ. And then following Jesus, actually it's more glorious than you can ever imagine. 
You have been made alive in Christ. So let's look at the default life, the first, I think it's four or five verses of this passage. Before we look at this, and I'll say it again at the end as we look at this section, God does not want people to experience the first few verses of this passage. This is not on God's heart for people. God does not want people to die in sin. He does not want people to have to experience his wrath. This is not what he wants. God's heart is that people are brought from that into glorious life. But it only happens through Jesus. It only happens through this rescue that God performs through Christ. Look at what verse 1 says. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. See, before the Ephesians came to Christ, their reality was not that they had a little bit of a missing jigsaw, but it's that they were dead in sin. And the Bible is really consistent all the way through. It always says that sin causes death to human beings. Genesis 2, verse 17, right at the beginning... We find this, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Right at the beginning, God says disobedience to him, going our own way, having our own agenda that goes against what God would want for us, causes death. We will surely die, it says there. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul will say, for as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all shall be made alive. So we're either in Adam, we're found in sin, and we're heading for that separation from God, or we're made alive in Christ and heading for this glorious eternity. If you want to hear more about sin, come this evening. Tough questions we're going to be looking at. Are all sins equal? What what is this all about sin? It's not a, a nice word, it's an ugly word, it's a word that is all about those things that we do inside of us where we fail to love as God would love where we are full of pride or greed or hatred or all these other characteristics that don't reflect God. We see also in the beginning of Genesis, God will say that we are made in his image. We are image bearers. What does that mean? What does it mean to be made in God's image? Go on, shout it out. What does it mean? We're excited. Sorry? Likeness to him? Share his character? Creative. We have potential. These are all good words. Any others? What other things can we do that God does? Love, really important one. Form relationship. All these things, all these things are innate in who God is. God has said we are in his image. We are capable of doing all these things. But the image that God has put in us of himself is so marred and battered by sin that sometimes it can become almost unrecognisable. We're as if, you like, we're like a plant. It's not a very glamorous looking plant, but that was a plant that has been pulled out of the ground. You can still tell it's a plant, can't you? Is it alive or is it dead? Well, it's not got long left, has it, if it's left there? It's not going to win any prizes in a beauty competition looking like that. And you see, we can be like that without Christ. We can look like we're still living, but actually, we're dying. There is no eternity. There is no future. Then Paul says, we used to follow the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. First one is fairly fairly straightforward. You know, the influences of the world around us that would pull us away from God, that would cause us to be hateful and greedy and all these other things. But who is this ruler of the air? Bit of an odd phrase. 
Well, what Paul is doing here is using a phrase that actually the Ephesians would understand quite naturally. Um, the Greeks believed that between the moon and the earth, demons roamed and tricking spirits who would try and get people to do all kinds of bad things. And what Paul is effectively saying is, not that Greek mythology is true, not for one minute, but actually that Satan exists and he will pull people away. He will cause people um, to go and live in ways that God doesn't want us to do. You know, all of us, if we're honest, even if you've been a Christian for many, many years, if you look deep inside your heart, there is still those traces of sin, isn't there? There are still those desires that come out of you that you actually think, I'm deeply ashamed of who I am. Deeply, deeply ashamed. Deeply know that there is something wrong with us. You know, you might be here today and you might actually think, naturally, you're a greedy person or a lustful person or a, um, a lazy person or an envious person or a violent person. Perhaps not all, all at once, but these things might emerge out of us. These characteristics that we know are deeply wrong. Verse 3, Paul says, all of us lived among them. It can be very easy to read a passage like this and to want to start pointing the fingers at different people and say, you know, we're not the people at the first part of these verses. That was those people over there. They were really bad. But actually, we were okay and just needed a bit of polishing up. But actually, Paul will say, actually, no, all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us would be in this state without Jesus Christ. But there's more to come yet, and it doesn't get any better until we get down a little bit further. We were deserving of wrath. Wrath isn't a nice word, is it, really? It's a word that we can read that talks about deep anger, about it's, a, it's, it's quite a, a word that can really get under our skin, and we think, actually, what is this talking about? And we can start to think, well, what have I done? What have I done that would deserve God's wrath upon me, God's anger towards me? But just hold on a minute. Think about the world in which we live. Think about when you put the news on and you see some of the horrific things that go on in our world. Think about those migrants trying to get to a better life across the Mediterranean, dying in boats. Think about children who are being trafficked for sex across the globe. Think about the terror attacks that happened in Manchester not that long ago, of all those innocent lives lost of people who were just having a night out at a concert. Now, I'm a human being, and my heart breaks for some of those things. You know, I want to see that God will bring justice in those kind of situations. Just think how God's heart breaks over what he sees human beings doing. Someone has said, God's wrath is his love in action against sin. His love in action against sin. J.I. Packer summarizes it, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritably, morally ennoble thing the human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to the objection of moral evil. Now, we may want to say, well, that's fine. Let's apply it to Satan. Let Satan have God's wrath. Or let particularly nasty human beings, you know, people like Hitler and those kind of people, who've done horrendous things, let them be victims of God's wrath. But actually, what does Paul say? Without Christ... This would be all of us. Without Christ, without being made alive again, this would be all of us. Because the problem is the same cravings and the same evil desires that create all the world's problems, if I look deep inside of me, they're in me as well. They may not be as far on as they are in some people, but they're there and they can cause devastation to people around us. 
Now, we can't rescue ourselves. We can't rid ourselves of any of this. We are in the cycle of self-destruct. We are the plant that has been pulled up, that is dying without the source of life and light. This is all very gloomy, isn't it? This is not an easy read. It's not a nice read. And I think it is so important at this point, again, that we say this is not what God wants for anybody. Just look at these two amazing passages of Scripture. So Jesus speaking in the first one. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. If God has sent people to tell us. He sent the prophets. He has sent um, his only son. He has given everything so that we might be made alive. And then look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. The God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God doesn't want human beings to be in default mode. But the good news is, this is past tense for the Ephesians. This is not who they now are. This is not Paul saying, actually, forget all that bit I've just said about how amazing what Christ has done in chapter 1. Actually, you're rubbish. He's not saying that at all. But he's saying this is the default position of the human being without Christ. And then we get to something absolutely glorious that is coming up. My first job interview that I ever went to, of all things, was to play the piano in a foyer in a hotel at Manchester Airport. And I must have been in my late teens. And I went for this job interview. And it was in Cheadle Hume. Um, now, I'd been to school in Cheadle Hume, you know, over in Stockport. So I thought I knew where this man lived, who I was going to meet. So I had to go, do an audition, and then it would be decided whether I would put, be put on this rotor to play at this hotel. So I set off. Got to where I thought the house was. Wasn't there. I'd gone to the wrong place. And I had no idea of how to get to the right place. It was 15 minutes to get back home, and I was already, by this time, only five minutes until my interview was due to take place. These were in the days when the phone was plugged into a socket at home and had buttons on it and didn't do anything about telling you where to go anywhere anyway. I didn't even have an A to Z. Remember those A to Zs that used to carry around? You might still have one in your car. I didn't even have a map with me. So I'm driving round. Time is ticking on. I get five minutes late, 10 minutes late, 15 minutes late. What would you have done in those situations? cry, more or less. I could feel the blood pressure going up, getting really, really stressed. Eventually, I found where this man lived, and he was sat on his drive, not looking very impressed. Wasn't great. But actually, I set off thinking everything was okay. I set off thinking the road that I'm on will lead me to my interview, only to find out that the reality was something quite different. You know, a lot of people live life thinking that everything is okay, only to find when we read a passage like this that things are quite different. What do we do with this kind of passage? What do we do with this first part? Two things. If you've never heard what is coming next about the glorious life that Jesus offers to us, can I encourage you to listen to what comes next? This is not where God wants you to stay. He doesn't want you to stay in the first part of this passage. Secondly, 
If perhaps you have been a Christian for many years, you're following Jesus, you know this is the testimony of what you have been, and you know that actually you're now in the second part of this chapter. Can we use it to spur one another on to sharing Jesus with people? Because God does not want anybody to be in the first part of this passage. But lots of people remain in default mode if we're not sharing Jesus. Because people can't respond to a message that they haven't heard. So can we just think about that as we carry on? Let's look about the second part of the passage. It starts to get a bit better now. Verse 4. We get the word, but. And everything is turned on its head. Everything is turned upside down here. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. And it's as if you're like, you know, you've been walking down a path and the clouds are overhead and it's stormy and suddenly the sun comes out and you see this incredible view before us. Everything at this point changes. You know, never let's get complacent about these verses. These verses should bowl us over whether we've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years. You know, put your name in there. Put your name and say, it's Christ who loves us. Look at the person next to you. Put their name in there in these passages and say, this is all about what God has done for us. God who gives us what we don't deserve. We deserve wrath, Paul tells us. What does God give us? Mercy. Grace. Even, it says, when we were dead in transgressions. And here is the most amazing thing of all. This is God's initiative to us. We don't have to go seeking after God. We don't have to follow a 12-point plan of spiritual enlightenment or anything like that. But God in Christ reaches down and rescues us. He rescues us. Tom Wright puts it like this. The life with Christ is not a life of spiritual enhancement, rather a life with a radical rescue. I just want to think about that phrase for a moment, while we were dead. (coughs) While we were dead. I was reading something the other day, and I can't actually remember who it was by. It might have been Tim Keller, so I'll just credit him with it for now. But it was something like this. Jesus spent his time with those on the margins, with tax collectors, with liars, with adulterers, with prostitutes, those forced out of society by unclean diseases. He ministered there, not exclusively, but a lot of his ministry was there. If our churches do not reflect this, I would suggest we really cannot claim to be following Jesus. Where are we ministering at the moment as a church? Are we ministering actually to those who are dead in sin? Those who actually Jesus would minister to? You see, the church is never called to be the resting place of the righteous, is it? It's not called, let's be rescued and let's sit around and chat for the rest of our lives. But actually we are called to be the bearers of good news, to the broken, to those on the margins. Jesus did it. We're called to do it. You know, I would really love to see us over the years become a church where the mess of life, where the mess of everybody's human existence is brought far more into our midst than it is at the moment. Where we are open to actually people coming in and discovering the good news of the second part of this passage it will probably make us less respectable. But I don't think that is a bad thing. Was Jesus respectable in who he spoke to? He spoke to everybody and anybody. 
those in dire need of this great rescue plan of God. Why is this important? Because God welcomes us all in the state of being dead. He welcomes us all. Welcome because God welcomes us in exactly the same condition. Look at verses 5 and then again in verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This rescue that Christ has brought, it's not something we have earned. We don't deserve it. We're just granted it. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross. Because Jesus took onto himself that very thing that would kill us. He took onto himself the very sins that we have done that separate us from God. He took onto himself all that rubbish of humanity so that we can not only know his life now, but know it for eternity. By grace, through faith. We don't earn it, we just receive it. These were the words that in the Reformation 500 years ago were absolutely central to what Luther and then Calvin would take on and say, actually, this is what matters. You know, today, let's never lose this. Let's never get into that place where we think, actually, I'm okay, I just need a a bit of a polish or whatever and I'll be fine. We need this radical rescue. If we've been radically rescued, we need to share that radical rescue with other people so they, too, can be made alive in Christ. And then we get some good news as well. We are rescued, if you look at verse 6. It says, so that God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show you the incomparable riches of his grace and expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. We have been raised up with Christ. We are part of the new creation. We will reign with him forever and ever. What a change of perspective. If you want to change a perspective on life, this is it. From the day-to-day stuff to reigning with the Son of God forever and ever. This is the future hope, the future glory. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. But there is even more than this in this passage, because that's the long-distance view. That's what's coming up either when Jesus returns or we go to be with him. But there is a today element of these verses as well. Look at what it says in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God wants to put us to work now. He wants us to do stuff. Good works is a kind of blanket term that Paul will use to say anything that reveals something of the heart of God to other people. Anything that we can do that serves the gospel, that serves the poor, that goes out there with this amazing news that we can be made alive in Christ. Do you know what God has for you to do? He says in here, God has planned stuff. That's for all of us. No matter what age we are. doesn't matter what life stage we're in. There is stuff that God wants us to do to see his kingdom grow. So today, what should our response be to this passage? Well, is it self-satisfaction and a sit-down with a biscuit and a cup of tea saying, I'm great, I'm okay? Well, verse 8 sort of cuts across that rather a lot. We can't boast about this. 
This is not of our doing. This is all God's initiative. Well, is it just to sit around in anticipation that one day this rescue that we've already experienced will become everything and we will be with Jesus forever? Well, verse 10, rather, undoes that as well. This is a motivational passage. It's a passage to remind us of who we are. Surely our response today to this passage needs to be that coming in thankfulness, that coming thinking, actually, we are amazed at what God has done. But then that desire to see that shared, that desire to see that walk forward in other people's lives. So just three things for us to think about as we draw this to a close. Over the coming months, we're going to be looking more and more as a church at our pioneering ministry, about how we seek to share Jesus with people in our areas that at the moment we're we're just not reaching in any way. I think this is a passage that needs to be a motivator. The default position for the human being is away from God. God desires that people become alive in him. You know, as we think as a church, and it's nothing new, it's nothing that we're doing that actually we've not been told to do, we're just actually being obedient by pioneering. That's all we're doing. We're aligning ourselves with the Great Commission. If, as those plans start to be rolled out, if you're thinking, actually, I need to be involved in this, please put that high up on your priority list so that we see more and more people go from the first part of this um, passage to the second. The second thing, perhaps, for all of us, is that this passage just needs to be a reminder, a glorious reminder of who we are in Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, this again is about your identity, who you are in him. The third thing, perhaps you haven't responded to this invitation to a radical rescue. Or perhaps you're not sure whether you've responded. If if that is you, God wants all of this stuff in the second part to be yours and to be confident in it because this is the identity that God would want to speak over you. If that is you, come and talk to me, come and talk to Chris, come and talk to one of the other leaders, talk to somebody nearby you. We'd love to share with you a little bit more about what that means. I'm just going to read the last few verses here. Just hear these words of who we are in Christ. From verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. But it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show you the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that when we are found in you, we have been made alive. Thank you that we have been radically rescued. Thank you that this is through grace and not through what we could do. Thank you that this is not about us thinking that we've, we are okay, but just looking at your grace and your mercy and your love that has been poured out into our lives. Lord, I want to pray particularly, perhaps there are some of us this morning who are actually struggling that this could be us. We think, surely there is something I need to do. Surely there are things that I need to do to make me acceptable to God. Perhaps you just need to hear again the words this morning, that Christ has done it all for you. You just need to receive it. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his Holy Spirit into your life. 
receive that outpouring of love. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. May we again know the reality of it in our hearts and lives today, we pray. For Jesus' sake.